Guru Nanak and the Origins of Sikhism. If we can see the connectedness of the diversity around us, then every interaction we have becomes beautiful. And that, I think, is revolutionary, even in our times today as we're thinking about. We, we do the opposite. We're like, how do I tolerate? We use the word tolerate, right? Like, how do I, it's not how do I deal with or how do I celebrate the difference. It's, it's how do I tolerate it. And so Kurnanik's vision was almost the opposite. It was like, how do I, how do I see God in everything that I encounter? Like, that's, that's what this idea of Ikonkaro is doing for him. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. This November marks the 550th birthday of the founder of Sikhism, Guru Nanak. The belief system he developed is based on oneness, open-hearted love, and justice. To reflect on the birth of this remarkable prophet, belief sits with Simran Jeet Singh, author, scholar, religion news service contributor, and senior fellow at the Sikh Coalition. I'm here with Simran Jeet Singh. He writes the column Articles of Faith for Religion News Service. He's been a guest before. Thank you for joining us again, Simran. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your article this month in Religion News Service reflecting on the anniversary of the birth of Guru Nanak, a central figure in Sikhism. And since there's such a, a dearth of understanding about Sikhism, I thought maybe now would be a really great time to go back and in the celebration of the birth, let's unpack Sikhism and your faith. That sounds great. Let's start with Guru Nanak and, um, and his birth 550 years ago. Sure, yeah, he was born in 1469 uh, in a small village called Talwandi, um, which is in modern-day Pakistan. Uh, and it's in the region of Punjab. This is what Sikhs consider their homeland, Punjab, uh, literally translates to the land of five rivers. So it's a very sort of rich agricultural area. Um, it's, it's at the edge of, well, I guess it's, it's at the pass of Central Asia and South Asia. It's called the Khyber Pass. And so there is, because of the migration patterns in the area, that was the way people came through to South Asia or through to Central Asia. And so a lot of cultural mixing, uh, different religious communities at this time. Is that part of the Silk Road, of some of the trade routes that went across to China from from the Mediterranean? Right, exactly, yeah, right right through the Khyber Pass there. One of our assumptions about the past is that, uh, you know, we have diversity today in a way that we didn't see before. Uh, but here's, here's an area where you have, in, in Punjab 550 years ago, uh, you have Muslims, you have Hindus, you have Buddhists, you have Jains, and then here comes Guru Nanak. And he, he looks around, and I think what he sees in the world around him is, uh, is unhappiness and unrest, um, and perhaps more than anything, um, social disparity. Uh, you know, his vision for the world was, was rooted in, his, in an idea of oneness. The first teaching that he gave uh, is Ikonkar. It's the first term that I learned. It's the first thing I've taught my daughters. It basically just means, ik means one, onkar is a word for the creator. So there's one creator. And what this means for us in our tradition is that the entire world is connected through the creation. And so Guru Nanak's vision of oneness was, you know, there's no one, no one's good. What, what did he say? Ham nahi changi buran nahi koi. I'm not good and no one is bad. Everything's equal. This was, this was his vision. He said it over and over again. Um, and so as he looked at the social disparities around him, he essentially decided to devise a new system, a new tradition, a new community 
um, that would live out this ideal of oneness. It's so interesting to think of a movement, a religion, having a beginning. It's not, I think it's not something that we think of in, in modern times, that there could be new belief systems that are coming up, that are can, sort of emerging. And when they do, we, we, we ridicule them a little bit because they're so young. And um, I'm particularly struck about the story about how he could be looking at all of this plurality seeing the same things that we see in plurality, we see inequality, we see injustices, and we see a lot of strife. He pulls something, um, oneness, out of the plurality. Do you think there's any oneness that we can pull out of the plurality of where we are now? No, I think, I think that's, that to me is the most powerful and relevant message of, of Guru Nanak's teachings today. Um, I found it personally quite useful because, you know, we live in a world right now um, and I see this a lot with my students, especially, who feel so committed to their vision of the world that they have a hard time stepping into the shoes of someone else or seeing from the perspective of someone else. And, I, you know, that's just one step of it. But then what do you do when you're trying to not just see someone else's perspective, but then actually reconcile the humanity of someone who disagrees with you deeply, or even tries to harm you, right, or hates you. And I think one of the things that I take from Guru Nanak is those are all and can be reconciled if we have a vision of oneness. And so the challenge is not, is this person evil? The challenge is, how can I connect with this person's humanity? And it doesn't necessarily mean you don't stand for justice or or, or stand for humanity. I, I think you absolutely do, and Kiranonik did that. But but it gives us a way of dealing with all the differences around us at a time when we don't really have many good models for doing that. We say this every evening at six. I sing this to my daughters every night. He's, he's basically giving all the different sort of increments of time. There are milliseconds and seconds and minutes and hours all of these are really the same thing. They're all mediated by the same source. And so we can call them different names, and they actually are different things, but at the root, they're mediated by, by one thing. They all come from the same place. And then he says, at the end of that line, he says, he gives another example that's, that's similar. He says, uh, He says, the, the sun is one, the seasons are many. And he says, God just has many forms. And so his entire vision of the world was if we can see the connectedness of the diversity around us, then every interaction we have becomes beautiful. And that, I think, is revolutionary, even in our times today as we're thinking about. We, we do the opposite. We're like, well, how do, I, how do I tolerate? We use the word tolerate, right? Like, how do I, it's not how do I deal with or how do I celebrate the difference. It's, it's how do I tolerate it. And so Grunanic's vision was almost the opposite. It was like, how do I, how do I see God in everything that I encounter? Like that's, that's what this idea of Ikonkaru is doing for him. We have a real cancellation culture right now, and it's easy to see how we would have arrived at this moment in a generous way. You can see that the, some people, they have convictions that are so important to them, which I guess the nature of convictions that they have to say, I need to draw the line at abortion. I am compelled to call that the thing that I, I see it as, which is 
a violation. Or some people will say, I, I see the xenophobia that you're expressing as a violation of some principles that I cannot allow to continue without taking a stand against. And you can see the earnestness, the honesty, and the genuine uh, hurt and anger that comes from being confronted with a, a violation of principles that you really, really, really want to dedicate your, your heart and your soul to. How do, we, how do we back away from those things when they're so important to us? Well, I think, I think there, are, there are two things that I, that I learned from Gurnanik's life that are especially helpful here. Um, one, is, one is the value of humility and recognizing that each of us is part of a whole um, and that when we truly recognize that, that every individual is an expression, a unique expression of divinity, then we no longer feel like we have to counter those expressions at all times as, as a personal stance. And also, we don't feel like we have to carry the burden of changing everyone's minds in this world or, or, or trying to change the whole world, right? Like, Guru Nanak didn't change the entire world. He didn't change everyone's minds that he met. He didn't change everyone's minds in his own family, right? And this is like what we see with other historic iconic figures from other traditions and, and people we admire. And so, so I think that, that's, that's been really helpful to me to, um, to ground myself a bit and to say um, it's okay if not everyone in the world agrees with me. And it's probably important. At the same time, I think what I what I see in Guru Nanak's life is he had clarity as to what his principles were and what he would stick with. So he would be in conversation with anyone and everyone. Across the board, he met with people of different religious backgrounds, different castes, different regions, different languages. He had conversations, he had interactions. Uh, and I think that was important for who he was. But he also didn't shy away from criticizing those who had power and use that power to harm others. And I think that for me is where I think about, that's how I think about drawing the line. When people's expressions and visions turn into violence, then that's a problem. And that's not, I don't necessarily think, or I don't believe you have to dehumanize those people and say that those people are evil and, you know, X, Y, Z. But I do think you can call them out. Gurunana called out, you know, political leaders of his time very directly. But for him, as far as I can understand, that conviction comes around harm and oppression and tyranny of any kind. You mentioned something just casually about how we all have beliefs that are maybe not accepted by the people around us and Guru Nanak as well. Tell me a little bit more about this, this man. So, so here's, here's something, and you, you've sort of raised this before, and it's, it's something that's come out of my research, actually. I, so I spent years of my life studying the earliest accounts of Guru Nanak. And one of the things that I found, both in his writings and in writings about him, you know, he's only it's 550 years. Like, we actually have his writings that, that six read today. That's not something everybody has, like definitive things that you can, you can really hold. Right, exactly. And then even the, the earliest accounts of his life came, came less than 50 years after he passed. So it's very likely that those are oral traditions coming from either someone who knew him personally or, you know, one person removed from a direct relationship. And so very close as a historical source. 
And one of the things we see about Gurudanik that I that I just think is so fascinating is a very clear intention about creating a new community. So he he wrote his own compositions, scripture. He established a community. He had community centers. He appointed a successor. He had an initiation ceremony. So like very intentional about creating a religious tradition, institutionalizing. He established a city, uh, Kirtarpur, which is on the Pakistani side of the border, actually, this past weekend for the first time since Pakistan and India were established. Um, six have been able, six, they, they opened up the border for six to go pay their respects at, at this at this city that Gurunanik established. And so like a really, a really powerful moment. Actually, I was, I was just at a deli this, this morning uh, and there was a Pakistani guy at the counter and we talked for about 10 minutes and he was just telling me how touched he was by like seeing these six come back into, you know, their homeland and, and see this historic. So anyway, it's just, it's just like a, yeah, a, a really meaningful moment for six right now. But yeah, I think what, what that tells us is something about the way he understood the world, that to be a religious person, and he writes about this in his teachings, to be a religious person is not to, to hide within oneself and just be spiritual or meditating or ascetic in any sense. Um, he was very political, and that, that ethic and that vision for for what it means to be religious, that that translates into what we see from the Sikh community today. Moving on to what would these be called? Were they would they be called tenants? Is it part of a of a larger group of lessons? Is it? Yeah, I think the, you see it at the opening of the text, and and that it's called the Mool Mantra is is where it opens, and it appears frequently throughout the scripture. Uh, and Mool Mantra basically translate to. Mool is like a root or an essence, uh, and mantra is like something you repeat. So, so the maybe like the the core teaching, um, and many Sikhs say that all of Sikh wisdom emanates from this core doctrine of ikonkar, of of what I would call radical connectedness. Mm. And and one of the one of the really interesting things that that you'll see in Sikh scripture. Well, first of all, it's it's all in poetry and song, uh, so it's it's in verse. Um, and for the most part, there's no there's no particular name for God in the text. The way that, because the belief is that that God, quote unquote, is a force, um, something that does not have material substance in the way that we think about it today. So it's, there's there's the teaching is kalak 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 makalak. The creator is in the creation, and the creation is in the creator. Everything is divine, and the way that we get to know God is through the qualities. So when God is referred to throughout Sikh scripture, it's referred to as adjectives, um, descriptors. And so um, the Mul Mantar, this, this core teaching, is a list of attributes of, of how we think about God. And the point is to know God is to be like God, and, and, and we ought to try and embody these these attributes in our own lives. And so some of those include truth, creativity, fearlessness, being without hate, being sovereign and immortal. Like the, these are like, you know, they're, they're simple and they're also really profound if you, if you try and incorporate these 
into your daily life. And, and so this is how we think about the life of Guru Nanak, that he was living these attributes. And so we look at him as a model for us of, of what that life could look like. You move on in your article to the properties of love. Tell me about love. In the Sikh teachings, the idea is that to truly feel the connectedness of the world, to live as a Gunkar, to feel connected is to be in love. And so like anybody who's been in love in any relationship will know what that feels like, at least on some level, right? Like you're, you feel connected to somebody uh, and you think about them, you're reminded of them and no matter what you're doing. Uh, you're walking down the street, you see a sign and you're like, oh, this reminds me of that person because of whatever particular aspect of your relationship. And so, so imagine that to a degree where every single thing you encounter in life reminds you of a particular relationship, of a divine relationship, and then and that's love, right? That's like a, that's very natural outcome. And so, that feeling that comes from that connectedness is joy. We've all experienced that in, on some level. Um, and in the Sikh tradition, the teaching is that the goal in life is to achieve love in our life, to live a life of connectedness. You know, we don't really have a focus on salvation in, in, in the way that we might expect from, other, from knowing other religious traditions. Um, the goal in, of a sixth life is to be in love, to achieve love with a capital L, and the way to get there is to practice love on a daily basis, right? So it's like this mutually reinforcing cycle where you want to be in love and so you practice love and the more you do it the closer you get there and the closer you get there the more you want to do it right so like that's it's it's very simple in its conception but as Guru Nanak teaches it's it's very hard to actually put into practice the ideas of sovereignty and justice I feel come through uh, in the Sikh tradition in a different and stronger way talk to me about the justice and the sovereignty of of the Sikh tradition and and how that emerged yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a natural outcome, right? If you truly feel connected to the world around you and you truly love the people around you, if you truly see the creator and the creation and the creation and the creator, then, like, you're going to be moved to serve, right? Like, if you think about your relationships now, if you love someone, you're going you're gonna to help them. I have these two kids at home, and I do stuff that I don't want to be doing, but I do it out of love, right? And I'm not complaining. Like, I, I, I do it happily, I don't get anything out of it other than whatever I have invested in our relationship, right? So like there's there's this, the, the term we use in our tradition is, is seva, selfless seva, selfless service. And the idea there is, the reason we, I, I sort of qualify it with selfless or sometimes I'll say it's, it's a inspired service. It's not, it's not just about the actions that you do, it's also about your intention behind them. So like in, in some ideologies or even in like our common parlance in the American context, if we're talking about service, like it doesn't really matter why you're doing it, right? Like I, in high school, it was like, what, what was your service project that you could put on your resume so you can get into college, right? Like it was, it was just literally about what you did with your hands. And in, in, in Sikh teachings, what you have in your mind and in your heart is just as important as what you're doing because it has to be, to be seva, it has to be inspired, by this feeling of connectedness. The very first story we hear about Guru Nanak as kids is one where his father gives him money and says, go 
make a good business transaction, go make a good deal. The word we use is, is soda in Punjabi. And, and he says, go to town and do this. And, and Guru Nanak goes and he sees a group of poor um, sadhus, like um, devout people. And he goes and he gives them all his money. And he comes back and his dad was like, what'd you do? You squandered all the money. And he was like, actually, that was like, he said, this is, the, this is the true transaction. This is the, what, what could have been better than that? And so you see from the very outset, right, from his model that like, there's nothing better than service in our teaching. Like seva, as selfless service, like that is, that is what you do in your life. And like, it can be anything as long as the intention and the motivation is rooted in this idea of connectedness and love. Here's a silly question. We've talked before about different aspects of uh, Sikhism, and we've talked about uh, your ritualizing when you wrap your turban in the morning. Is there a part that connects you the strongest to the Sikh teachings, to Guru Nanak, to, to everything that you are? Is there is there one part of, I guess, the liturgy, for lack of a better term, that makes that like Seva, like like Ikonkar, as you teach your daughters, it's the first thing that you teach them, the oneness. Is there one part of it that you can you can say, I identify here the strongest? There's certainly a few, and some of them are more physical aspects of practice, and some of them are more conceptual. Um, I think the thing that really drew me in was this vision of this vision of I guess of 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 ikongar of oneness as it pertains to our relationships with the people around us. So I, I, what I mean by that is, I you know I grew up in Texas. People, not just because of racism, but also because of racism, um, and not just because of white supremacy, but also because of white supremacy. Like people would see me as being subhuman in some way, right? Like all these sort of assumptions and biases that we all have, including myself, about what constitutes uh, a modern civilized person. Like, I don't really fit into that. And, like, I don't look like that. And because they didn't have an opportunity to engage with the actual teachings, they didn't didn't see that, right, Uh, intellectually. And so... I, I started internalizing a lot of that growing up and being like, well, does this even make sense? Does that make like this this idea of afterlife and six not having afterlife? Like my question after internalizing it as a teenager was, well, is my tradition complete? How can it not have an, how, not, how can it not have an answer to this question? All my friends have answers to this question, and like it must be a central question if they're asking it. And so. I think what really, what I really ended up connecting with when I was in college especially was understanding this, this very different way of pluralism than what I'd been presented before, right? Like pluralism before had always been like superficial and like don't judge other people. There are many paths to the same thing. And like basically what we say now is like you do you, right? Like that's, that, was, that was the model. Um, but there was no real nuance there and like no real authentic appreciation for diverse expressions of, of anything, right? Like, so if, if I was like, you do you, it was pretty much like, I'm right. And you might also be right, but like, I don't really care. Mm. 
and that that's kind of what I was seeing around me and 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 entering into Guru Nanak's worldview and being like, oh, actually, I respect you because you are different. Mm. Like, that's what makes you human. And, and like, we have this shared core thing of like our, our, our inner light, our, our divinity. But then on top of that, like for me to really be in love with the world around me, like I want to know why you're different and what makes you, like it was, it was totally, it's a, like a totally different approach. Um, and, and one that my parents had instilled in me growing up, but it was subconscious. Like I didn't know that that's how I understood the world. Mm. I didn't know that it came from, from Sikhism or from Guru Nanak's teachings. It was, it was I just thought it was like how my parents lived. Um, and once I started understanding the systematic thought behind it, that's when I was like, oh, this is, this is for me. Like, this is how, like, I don't want to, it was, it was around that time that I was like, oh, I don't actually want to buy into an afterlife as opposed to wondering why we didn't have it. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I, I like this better for me in terms of like how I want to understand the world. So like, yeah, that, that to me was where, uh, things really started connecting. It seems like the, the, the love, the oneness, the sovereignty, the justice, they all seem to be like this, this incredibly gentle armor for exactly the, the attitudes of, of tolerance instead of deep appreciation that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And so when you ask me what's, what's the one thing, like I, I realize I'm answering by saying like all of it. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of cheating, but it is to me like the, the beauty of, of the tradition is like it, it feels to me like it all makes sense. It makes sense for me. It makes sense in my head. It makes sense in my heart. And like, it actually gives me some, it's given me something and it continues to give me something for day-to-day living. And like, that's, that's where I'm like, this, this is a powerful thing, right? Like I'm happy because of these teachings that I've been able to access. And, and that's, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Last question. As we celebrate the birthday of, of this man and the emergence of Sikhism, how does Guru Nanak die? There's so many sad tales of, of the gurus of all religions meeting um, grisly ends with martyrdom, with, with so many different ways. Like, um, what happens at the end of his life? Yeah, it's a good question because the, the teaching in our tradition is always like, don't worry about death, worry about life, right? Like that's what we're always taught. But yeah, it, you're right that in other traditions, you see that, and you see that with later gurus, like the, like the more grisly deaths. Mm. With Guru Nanak, it wasn't that. He, um, so he spent his childhood in Talwandi. Um, then he moves to a town called Sultanpur Lodi. And then he starts traveling around South and Central Asia and establishing community centers. He, eventually, he comes back to the town that he established, Kartarpur, and he settles down there. This is the, the town that's on the edge of the India-Pakistan border. Um, and he settles down there, farms, you know, sort of has his community center. They have their regular practice um, and, and he passes. So it's, it's a sort of a quiet passing. There's nothing terribly remarkable about his passing. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, thinking about the, the accounts that I specialize in and, and how they describe his passing. Uh, right before he passed, uh, he appointed his successor. So the person who would become the next, the second guru. Guru Angad, he passes. One of the popular accounts of his passing is that after he dies, there's a sheet that's placed over his body, and the Hindus and the Muslims who are 
respecting who respect him uh, are arguing over who gets to dispose of his body. Like Muslims wanted to cremate or wanted to bury him, as in their tradition. Hindus wanted to cremate him. And when they lifted up the sheet, uh, his body had turned to flowers. And so it's 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 a common trope in South Asian literature. This this story you see it with other saintly figures, and and the message is essentially. It's, it's twofold to me that his body and our bodies belong to no one, that they're, you know, they're just containers while we live here. Um, and also no, no particular community has claim over Guru Nanak. So while Sikhs respect him and, and hold him in a special place, his teachings are for everyone and that we are to share them, right? And like this Pakistani Delhi owner who I hung out with this morning, he was talking about how much he respected Baba Nanak. He called him Baba Nanak. Mm. How much respect he has for him. And that's a very normal thing, right? Like, and that happens a lot with Hindus who know of him of him as well. And so I, I think that is, to me, like, in terms of how his, how the story of his passing is told, that's, that's the takeaway. Thank you, Simran. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Thank you, Jonathan. Our guest this week was Senior Fellow at the Sikh Coalition and Religion News Service contributor Simran Jeet Singh. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thank you for listening.